Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. We closed our last lesson with the apostles being arrested by the temple guards under the authority of the high priests and the Sadducees, who were the principal power behind the Sanhedrin council. They didn't arrest the apostles because they were given permission by the Roman government, and they weren't given such power because there was a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin council. This was the work of the high priests and the Sadducees, which was the liberal denomination of that day and rejected the resurrection from the dead either to heaven or hell. The doctrine of Christ's resurrection was absolutely offensive to them. With all the faults of the Pharisees, at least they believed in life after death. This is probably why they weren't directly involved in persecuting the apostles, at least at this time. Because of the fear the Sanhedrin produced among the people, nobody wanted to get on their bad side, for they can be vicious to say the least. Even the Pharisees on the council didn't want to get on the bad side of the high priest and his family, or they too could be censored, or even worse. These religious leaders could be brutal in their effort to retain control of their religious power. They were tyrants. Their persecution of the followers of Christ is just one expression of the ugly religion that they had created that was a total perversion of what the Lord had given the people of Israel in the beginning. Now let's resume the story after the apostles were arrested and had been put in public jail. We read in Acts chapter 5, verse 19, But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Obviously, not every time believers are arrested for the faith are they miraculously delivered. The Lord responds to each situation according to what He wants to accomplish through His disciples. He used the persecution His children experience to bring salvation to their persecutors and to mature the saints in their faith. I'm not saying that the Lord wants His people to suffer persecution as if He found some kind of joy when they suffer, for that's certainly not the case. But if we will be faithful to Him, then He will use our suffering for His glory and our salvation. Our Heavenly Father doesn't rejoice when His children suffer. He perfectly grieves for them as the loving Father God that He is. The Word teaches that He is a God of love, who is full of compassion for His children, and even to those who are rebels against Him. When we live for Him, then He will always be working for eternal salvation. This is His promise to us. At times it may be hard to understand where God is when it seems like we've been abandoned in our suffering. Yet He promised that He will never leave us or forsake us, and He is faithful to His promises. When His children suffer for the faith, he is right there with them, though they may not comprehend this fact. The promises of God are sure, and if we will remain faithful through the trials or persecution we face, we will know the kindness of God even if we must suffer the cruelty of men and devils. Those who are faithful to the end always win. They gain an eternal victory over death, hell, and Satan through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is the absolute victor and those who belong to him will know his victory when they breathe their last. After the apostles were miraculously released from prison, we are told in verse 20 what the angel commanded them to do. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. 
we find in this verse a very important principle that God expects his children to obey him explicitly without grumbling or complaining or questioning. The Lord sent the angel to the apostles not to have a debate with them, but to give them a command. If they refused to obey his command, they probably would have been executed the next day. Their only hope of deliverance was to explicitly obey the Lord's command. We find here the importance of godly character and how that's central to the Lord using his people. Do you want to be used by God? Then learn how to obey the Lord in everything, in personal holiness, a life of prayer, the faithful study of God's word, and proper obedience to spiritual authority. God doesn't anoint rebels with Holy Spirit power, but obedient children. And we need to be children that quickly obey and not have to go through a time of discipline for being rebellious until we finally obey, such as we see in the account of Jonah. The Lord brought the apostles out of prison through an angel who miraculously opened the prison doors, made any chains that they had been bound with fall off, and to blind the guards to everything that was taking place. After they were out of the prison, the angel gave them the command from the Lord. What was that command? Go and preach the good news of new life in Christ in the same place where they had been arrested. In our natural way of thinking, we would have thought they should go into hiding until things settled down a little. In every new situation, we must choose to obey the Lord, because His will for our life must be obeyed each step of the way. In this account, the apostles were to boldly preach the gospel in the same setting where they had been arrested, so that they could preach to the Sanhedrin council as well. Though they would suffer the wrath of man for their obedience to God, they would testify to the resurrection of Messiah to the very men that had crucified Christ. Notice the astounding love that God showed these wicked religious rulers by giving them another chance to repent before they faced the one they hated and crucified. Verse 21 shows us the apostles' quick obedience. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. It wouldn't take long in doing a character study of Abraham to see his quick obedience to whatever God commanded him. He exhibited this wonderful character trait, even in the face of intense testings, such as his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham's obedience is a fantastic example of a man who loved God, and as a result, he had total faith in him. Though he was a great man, with great wealth, he was a man that quickly obeyed whatever God commanded. There are many examples in Scripture where people quickly obeyed the Lord, and in every account, we also see the benefit that comes out of that obedience. Such is the case we are looking at in this lesson. When we come to the end of this account, we will see the outcome of their obedience, which is seen in verses 41 and 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing and continued to preach in the temple courts and from house to house in the name of Jesus. The beating and threats that they received didn't stop them from obeying Jesus by preaching the good news. The apostles knew there would be further consequences for faithfully obeying the Savior, but they chose to obey. We see the quickness of their obedience and that they went to the temple at daybreak, which is when the gates would have been open for prayer and sacrifice. They didn't secretly enter the temple at an obscure hour to protect themselves, but they entered when the doors were open 
and began preaching that salvation is found only through Jesus. Their preaching was anointed by the Holy Spirit because of their obedience, and this is an extremely important point. The high priest had called the full Sanhedrin to meet together so that they could condemn the apostles, whom they considered heretics. Their deliverance from prison and their preaching in the temple courts changed the dynamics of what the high priest had intended by calling the entire Sanhedrin together. Their intention was to have the apostles cowering before them, which is something that they loved to see. Instead, the apostles' miraculous deliverance from prison would become widely known and prove that God was on their side and not on the Sanhedrin's. Up until this point, the high priest and his family had been acting alone without the authority of the full Sanhedrin. The high priest wanted to stamp out this sect as quickly as possible, so he needed the full Sanhedrin's support. Now that he had captured the leadership of this new sect, he thought the full council would have the power and influence to silence them once and for all. The apostles' miraculous deliverance changed everything. After the Sanhedrin had assembled, which would have taken a little bit of time, they called for the apostles to be brought before them. We are told in verses 22 and 23, But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. If this would have been Roman soldiers, they would have been executed for letting their prisoners escape. But since these were temple guards, they probably didn't have such strict disciplinary actions under such rare situations. It certainly appears that the watch over the prisoners was done correctly and with all due diligence. Because of this, the account of the missing prisoners was totally baffling to the guards, the captain of the temple guards, and the Sanhedrin. The prisoners were all gone, and according to their way of thinking, this could have only been accomplished by some kind of conspiracy. Well, they were right. They just didn't realize it was a divine conspiracy. Then in verses 24 and 25, we are told, On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. The apostles weren't preaching out of arrogant defiance against the religious authorities of the nation, but humbly out of obedience to Christ. There's a good possibility that the Lord orchestrated this conspiracy for the protection of the apostles in the infant church. Otherwise, the Sanhedrin may have come down so heavy on the growing church that it ceased to be. The council knew that news about this event had spread quickly, and this forced them to proceed carefully, or they would incur the wrath of the people. Since they didn't fear God, but did fear people, they wanted to protect their position at all costs. They couldn't understand what all this meant, yet they refused to see the obvious, that God was with the infant church because Jesus was the promised Messiah. They didn't want to acknowledge this fact, for if they did, then they would realize their tremendous guilt before God for having Israel's Messiah murdered by the Romans. The hand of God is so clearly revealed in everything the Holy Spirit was doing in and through the church that it's astounding that the religious elite rejected all the evidence to continue believing lies. Then the Sanhedrin was informed that those same men that were arrested the day before were now preaching in the temple courts and had probably been doing so for many hours. 
In verse 26, we see how the Sanhedrin and temple guards feared the people rather than God. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles freely went with the soldiers because the Lord wanted them to testify to the murderers of Messiah. The point that the captain of the temple guard went with his men shows how serious this was. It would be like the chief of police of a major metropolitan area leading his officers to arrest some men. Or like Pontius Pilate going with his soldiers to arrest some zealots. This wasn't the norm, and this proves how serious the Sanhedrin was in wanting to eradicate the primitive church. Now, the manner in which the apostles were brought before the council had radically changed. At first, they would have been brought before the council as religious criminals. Now they walked in of their own free will. In verses 27 and 28, their interrogation began. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. It was the high priest who began questioning the apostles, and this shows again how serious they thought the situation had become. This didn't even happen in the sham trial of Jesus, where the high priest only spoke up after all the other arguments and accusations against Jesus had failed. But here the high priest begins the sham trial of the apostles. Part of this is because the high priest had prior to this arrested Peter and John without the full Sanhedrin's consent and commanded them to not preach in the name of Jesus. The preaching of Christ's resurrection was spreading all over Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin greatly feared this because it exposed their guilt in having Jesus crucified. This was like the axe chopping away at the idolatrous religion the religious elite had built and the self-righteousness that defined them. If they declared that Jesus was the Messiah, then they would incriminate themselves for his murder. This would tarnish the facade of their hypocritical religion and expose the truth that their hands were stained with Messiah's blood. There are three accusations or criminal charges that the high priest brought against the apostles, none of which were based upon the Mosaic law or even the laws of the nation. The first is the command given to Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, yet they couldn't give a biblical reason for giving them such an order. In response, Peter and John told the high priests and the Sadducees that they would obey God rather than man, which does have biblical support. The second is that they had filled Jerusalem with the preaching about Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. This would include the teaching that only through the name of Jesus can people be saved from their sins. According to the perverted way of thinking of the religious elite, this was a very dangerous teaching. The final charge was personal, that through the preaching of Christ's resurrection and that he was the promised Messiah, the guilt of the Sanhedrin had been clearly exposed. This certainly isn't something they wanted to be preached, because it could undermine the authority they had fought and killed to gain and retain. As I have said before, what the high priest said was only a synopsis of his accusations against the apostles, and what the apostles said in response is only a synopsis as well. This whole trial took more than the few minutes it takes for us to read the account. In verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. 
It appears that Peter was the primary spokesman of the apostles at this time, but it's likely that some of the other apostles spoke up as well. It only stands to reason that Peter began their defense because he had originally made this point with John after they were arrested over healing a man who was crippled from birth. The high priest brought up the injunction he made at that time that they must no longer preach in the name of Jesus. In response, Peter reminded the high priest what he had told him, which is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, and that they were only being faithful to what they had said. Now the entire Sanhedrin could understand that they would obey God rather than man, no matter what the cost may be. Then the apostles began to preach in verses 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. The first thing the apostles did in their response to the Sanhedrin was to prove that they had not abandoned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this was an important thing for them to do. They did this by referring to the God of our fathers, which makes a continuity from Abraham to the apostles and the disciples of Christ. Jesus was a Jew as to his humanity, and the council knew this to be true, even though at one time they falsely accused him of being a Samaritan. The Lord came from the lineage of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, and then belonged to the royal family of King David. The Jewishness of Jesus is a fact about his humanity, it is the way in which he came into our world to be our atoning sacrifice. Yet the Jewish Messiah is not just Israel's Messiah, for he is Messiah for all of mankind. But that's jumping ahead in the story of salvation, which we will get into in five more chapters. To prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the apostles declared the infallible evidence of his resurrection from the dead. For there to be a resurrection, there must be a death and the preaching of Christ's resurrection demands that his crucifixion be preached as well. To proclaim Messiah's death to those who crucified him was sure to arouse their anger and hatred, which it did. The apostles fearlessly proclaimed this truth, and this exposed the guilt of the Sanhedrin council in committing the most heinous crime that has ever been perpetrated by mankind. Not all the members of the council were personally responsible for having their Messiah crucified, there were a few who had become secret followers of Jesus, such as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. The high priest was uniquely guilty because he resided over the council and was the one who called for Jesus to be crucified by the Romans. After exposing the guilt of the Sanhedrin, the apostles returned to the subject of the resurrection, which proves that Jesus is Messiah by proclaiming that God exalted him to his own right hand. The King James reads that God exalted him with his own right hand, which means that the Father raised the Son by his own power, which is true. The 1984 NIV states that God exalted him to his own right hand, and this refers to the position that Jesus owns by divine right. This also reveals the equality between the Father and Son, and this is a very radical statement for the apostles to make before the Sanhedrin council. The fact that Jesus is equal to the Father makes the guilt of the Sanhedrin who are personally responsible for having Messiah crucified all the more evil. What the apostles preach gets even more intense by stating that God exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Savior. We see here two powerful titles that belong to Jesus, which are Prince and Savior. 
The apostles had come to realize after our Lord's death, resurrection, and ascension that he is both prince and savior. The title designation that Jesus prince is a revelation about his royalty, and this applies to his humanity and divinity. He is royal in relation to his humanity as the son of David, and as such, he is the rightful king of Israel, and he will rule over Israel forever and ever. If the Sanhedrin acknowledged this truth, then they would have to confess to the terrible sins they committed in crucifying the rightful king of Israel, and that's something they wouldn't acknowledge. Then we have Christ's royalty that relates to his divinity, where he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and this is further supported by his being exalted to the right hand of the Father. The title prince or king is a recognized title that applied to the promised Messiah. The Greek word translated as prince, which is how most translations interpret the word, means prince or chief leader or even author. It reveals that he has divine dominion, power, and authority that reaches even to the granting of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, which is the divine power to grant repentant criminals a pardon. The second powerful point the apostles made is that Jesus is Savior, and this could only be true if he was Messiah and the King of Kings. Salvation comes by God alone, and we know that the blood of bulls and of goats can't cleanse people from their sin. The sacrificial system under the Mosaic law was only a temporary covering of sin until the Lamb of God offered himself as our finished atoning sacrifice. The fact that Jesus' Savior is revealed in that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. This isn't a covering of sin, but the removal of sin, the real and eternal purification from sin. Only God can forgive sins. So to say that Jesus has the right to grant both the gift of repentance and forgiveness of sins is to say that he is divine, that he is equal to the Father. Even the Pharisees acknowledge that only God can forgive sins. And for the apostles to say that this power belongs to Jesus is to proclaim his divinity in clear, unmistakable terms. In verse 32, the apostles presented the powerful testimony of their being eyewitnesses of these events by stating, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. I've recently dealt in this podcast with the Jewish understanding of a witness and just how important that was to their faith and culture. For the apostles to proclaim that they were eyewitnesses of these events, of Christ's life, teaching, miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension was very powerful. Yet for the Sanhedrin to reject the overwhelming evidence that proves Jesus is the promised Messiah is absolutely astounding. They not only rejected the cultural norm about eyewitnesses, they also rejected the clear teaching in the Mosaic Law on this important subject. They were clearly being hypocrites by using a double standard in how they judged. They tried Jesus using eyewitnesses in an attempt to prove him guilty of some crime deserving of death, yet none of their supposed eyewitnesses agreed with each other. Now they have the apostles testifying as eyewitnesses of who Jesus is and of his resurrection, and they refuse to accept the testimony of eyewitnesses, of multiple eyewitnesses. This gets even more serious because the apostles not only said they were eyewitnesses testifying that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but the Holy Spirit was also a witness to these facts. And I don't think we can get a greater witness than the Holy Spirit. How did the Holy Spirit testify to the truth of who Jesus is? 
by the signs and wonders that was done through the apostles. Here is evidence that God the Holy Spirit was approving their message. Yet these blind religious rulers weren't interested in the truth or in the evidence. They only wanted to maintain their power, wealth, and prestige. Now for the apostles to make their arguments stronger, they made the powerful point that the Lord gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. This makes a clear distinction between the apostles and members of the Sanhedrin council. There are two ways we can understand this because of the way the phrase is worded. The first is in a generic way, which is how the Holy Spirit enters into and dwells within those who obey the Lord through repentance and surrender. This is the basics of salvation. Those who don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them don't belong to Jesus. The indwelling Holy Spirit is different from the baptism in the Holy Spirit, though He is the same Spirit. Every true believer has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, but not every believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit, even though the gift is offered to every believer. I personally believe that the apostles were referring to the baptism in the Holy Spirit in this verse, and not the indwelling Spirit that happens at salvation. It was after they were baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that the power for signs and wonders was being revealed through them. When they were being used for signs and wonders before our Lord's suffering, those miracles were done through the authority He gave them. After His ascension into heaven, the power for signs and wonders would come through the Holy Spirit. The witness of the apostles was powerful, but the witness of the Holy Spirit is infinite. There was more than enough evidence to prove Jesus was Messiah, but hard hearts that refuse to be softened by divine grace will only fight against God all the harder. We see this in the next verse. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. What nice religious leaders! Wouldn't you like the high priest for your next pastor in the Sanhedrin as your church board? That'd make for some very interesting church business meetings where they might want to kill some of the people that disagree with them. It's obvious that these men didn't represent in any way the Old Testament faith, and now they were rejecting the New Testament faith. Why were these men so angry and so quick to want to kill people? Because the truth had confronted the lies they believed, and they refused to accept the fact that they were believing lies. They also refused to see that they were wicked men for the atrocities they had committed. The apostles had done nothing wrong. They hadn't spoken in a wrong spirit, neither in pride or anger. But they told the Sanhedrin the truth and rightly exposed their guilt, which they refused to acknowledge. Then in verse 34 we read, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Gamaliel was a member of the Sanhedrin and was a renowned rabbi. He was the Apostle Paul's teacher and even rose to a higher distinction of rabbi to become a rabbin. He was a Pharisee, in contrast to the high priest who was a Sadducee. Though they were opposed to each other theologically, philosophically, and even politically, they had a common enemy, and this kept some semblance of unity among them. The Sadducees were the liberals, and the Pharisees the conservatives, and to both parties the apostles were the heretics. From the actions of Gamaliel, we see that he had some clout in the Sanhedrin because he was a respected teacher. 
He had the apostles put out so that he could address the council without there being any distraction to their discussion that would follow. In verse 35, Gamaliel addressed them saying, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. That's some really good wisdom. We will dig into what Gamaliel said in our next lesson, but the basic premise of his argument was simple. If their activity is of human origin, it will fail. If it is of God, you won't be able to stop it. This is certainly true in this case, but it's not always true in every case. A pragmatic approach to truth is actually a lie. Because something works doesn't mean it's true, good, or even God's will. The existence of cults and world religions are proof that lies continue to spread in a world that refuses to believe the truth. The examples Gamaliel gave are reasonable for the argument he was giving and in the situation he was in. We know the end result, which was the explosion of the church. A personal lesson we should take to heart from what Gamaliel said is that we should be careful in how we treat others in general so that we don't find ourselves fighting against God. How we treat one another in the church is extremely important. If we bite and devour each other, we will be consumed by each other as Paul warned us. But when we love each other as Christ loves us, then the world will know that Jesus is both Lord and Savior and that we are truly His disciples. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Thirst no more, so come wash in the river, come drink your fill, let healing waters.